Hello everyone, welcome back to the True Crime Friday podcast. I'm your host Lauren and this is episode two of series one of the podcast. And the first episode was basically all about Jeffrey Dahmer, his early life and stuff like that. So if you've not listened to it, I'm going to question how you're only listening to episode two. But then again, this is probably a case that you've never heard of before because I had never honestly heard of this case before ever. Uh, it just kind of popped up somewhere when I was just scrolling around looking for cases to talk about, to cover, just anything new that's not Bundy. And this one kind of just popped up out of nowhere. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about the monster of Florence. If you can't already tell, I'm not already, I'm not giving you an actual name. I've only given you a nickname. So this one is actually unsolved, which is... I don't really tend to focus on the unsolved cases that much because it's... You know, you like knowing about the early life and the psychology and stuff and stuff like that about the person, and you can't really do that when it's an unsolved one, really, can you? Uh, before we get into this, I would like to say a very quick disclaimer. I am not hero worshiping any of the people that I talk about on this podcast ever. This is a true crime podcast, and I'm interested in the history and the psychology of everything that we talk about and the events that happened because they tend to feel like a story and the more it's baffling how stuff like this actually did happen to people and I do not mean to have any given any disrespect to anyone or the topic of this I try and research the victims as much as I possibly can as individuals rather than victims so you can learn a bit more about them and who they were and focus on them primarily obviously we have to go into the psychology of the other twats that we have to deal with the dickheads that we have to talk about but yeah this is not hero worshiping and i'm not like obsessed romantically with these kind of people that's such a long disclaimer so the monster of florence is an unsolved serial killer case from florence italy hence the name since the late 1960s, many men in the city have been suspected of being the monster and some even tried for the murders. However, it is believed by the residents of the area that the real killer was never actually caught. Which means he could be watching this right now, if that's true. He could be listening. could be listening to me, listening to me discuss his heinous crimes. And if you are listening, Monster of Florence, how are you doing? You're doing good? You're happy? You having a good life? Lovely. I hope you step on Legos. So today we're going to be going into the murders that the monster committed and also his insane rituals that he would carry out with every murder and how I think he went so long about being detected. Uh, also, I am definitely calling him a he because it's kind of been like witnesses, people that survived have I said and confirmed this was a bloke this is the guy and yeah uh otherwise i would be saying they you go you get what i mean so the first known victims of the monster were antonio lo bianco and his fiance Bar- uh, barbara lucky okay um, and also i'm going to be mispronouncing so many names but i'm going to try my very best so apologies to people who are from italy and and or, I, I'm sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck a lot of this up, but I'll try my best. 
They were killed on the night of the 21st of August, 1968, in Signa, which is a small town just outside of Florence, Italy. The couple decided to stop driving to have sex, uh, presumably outside the car. Uh, I have to say this because this is a very common theme with these murders. Uh, Lockie's six-year-old son was asleep in the back seat of the car and he woke up to loud gunshots coming from nearby. And this is part of the murder that's a bit hazy considering that uh, the son was confused about what happened really next. But yeah, they had sex outside the car to not be near the son, be near the, be near the child. Uh, I mean, I find it weird. They, it's weird, but uh, no disrespect to them. You do you. Uh, the original telling of what happened was that the killer approached the car and found the boy. He carried him over his shoulders while singing a popular song to kind of like soothe him. He took the boy to the closest house he could see and left him with the people inside, and which obviously left him alive. This is common with the monster of Florence. He never targets children, and we can already see from the first murder that he cares for children, which makes me think that he does presumably have a family or he's never had any issues with children before which means everything must be he must have a family clearly or someone that he is connected to that he cares for deeply that is a child because otherwise he wouldn't shouldn't wouldn't really give a shit would he when the boy was found, Natalino told the house's occupant that his father was sick at home and his mother and his uncle, the uncle was the suspected was suspected of actually being his father, were dead in the car. Natalino was able to give a physical description of the killer, though his story didn't actually point to any suspects. As the years go on and the investigations on the monster pile up, Natalino would change his versions of events and would later say that he walked to the house from the car himself. This version of events can be taken away considering, according to the owners of the house, he turned up wearing no shoes or socks and didn't appear to have any dirty feet, which shows he wouldn't have walked through the woods completely alone. So it shows that he would have been carried. His father, Stefano Melli, who would later be arrested following the murders, he admitted his son's story of him being homesick, which was true. However, when a... Uh, when a lie detector test showed that he had recently fired a gun, he did admit to being present at the crime scene. It's so basically, he got questioned, they asked him about the weapons and stuff like that, he admitted that he had a gun, and that's the reason why he was just, he got arrested because it is suspected that he's not actually the father of the child, so he would have a motive in the police's eyes. He did also confirm that another man that his wife was having an affair with was one of the gunmen, Salvatore uh, Vinci. Melly would, would later drop all the accusations and take full responsibility for the double murders. He also said the murder weapon was thrown in a ditch, but the gun was never found. So he suspects this other man that his wife is having an affair with that isn't his brother, which is someone else called Sal uh, Salvatore. Uh, is the actual murderer. Forensics would could tell by the bullets that came from the gun that it was a 22 caliber Brietta. This gun was used for these two murders, but the exact same gun would be used for the other 14 murders that would later take place. 
Melly was sentenced to four years, 14 years in prison and he would be released earlier by changing his statement to being only an accomplice. The second victims, uh, the second murders took place on the 15th of September 1974. This was six years later since the first murders had taken place and they wouldn't get connected completely until 40, uh, until uh, the late until the rest of the murders were confirmed over the next number of years another comp another couple pasquale gentlecore oh my god i'm gonna say all of these wrong and i am so sorry who was 19 years old and stefina uh patini who was 18 was found br- found brutally murdered uh i do have to give you this warning right now because this is quite graphic if you're uncomfortable with gore or anything like that or any mentions of this kind of stuff i would skip this a little bit the couple had been out that day and decided to go for a drive before stopping in a secluded spot to have sex in their car after they were done a figure ran around the side of the car the unknown man shot pasquale in the head stefina terrified ran away from the car to try and get away but the killer shot her twice in the back of her legs leaving her to fall to the ground but she didn't obviously die he then stabbed her over 100 times in the chest then reached for a grapevine branch and put it inside of her some hours before the murder patini had said something to her friend when they were at a disco called the teen club that she had spotted a strange man who terrified her Another friend recalled that a strange man had followed and bothered the couple days before, days beforehand at a driving lesson. Several couples who had parked in that in that same area said it was frequented by voyeurs and a pair of them acting act, and a pair of them acting very oddly. Uh, voyeurism basically is a sexual interest in or practice of watching other people engage in intimate behavior such as undressing, sexual activity, or other actions considered to be private, aka peeping tom. Or as I've heard, many I've as, as I've heard other people describe it as wanking in windows, which is exactly about right. Uh, seven years later, on the sixth of June, nineteen eighty-one, another seven years has passed, and the third murder takes place. Naturally, because these have got such a massive distance in time frames, they're not being instantly connected because it's like these are so far apart. So another seven years had passed and the third murder took place. This was Giovanni Foggy, who was 30, and Carmela Di Nucchio, who was 21. They were a couple who had recently gotten engaged and, for context, a lot of couples in Italy, even though they were engaged, still often lived with parents before the wedding day, so to make sure nothing would happen before the marriage. But even if some parents had these rules, naturally many couples broke this rule, so they took to having sex in cars in secluded areas. The couple was shot and stabbed to death near Skadiki, where they both lived. I'm so saying that wrong. D. Nukio's body was found, was was pulled out of the car and the killer actually cut out her pubic area with a knife. Now this becomes a running theme as well with him. He would keep that area, he would keep, he would keep that area, so he'd cut it away, keep it as his own little trophy. They all tend to keep trophies. The next morning, a young a, a young voyeur, a paramedic named Enzo, 
went around speaking about the murder before the bodies had even been discovered. That act then resulted in Enzo spending three months in jail after being charged with the murders, but he would be set free when the murders would pick up again, meaning he is definitely not the one responsible. At this point, there have been six murders, four of which had been a running theme, shooting the man straight away to get him out of the way, then murdering the woman at a close range and violating her body to an extreme level. This shows definitely the intended target is women, but getting the man out of the way makes their lives a billion times easier and catching couples off guard in the way they are doing makes their task a whole lot easier than it would be to do it any other way. However, the murders around this point haven't been linked together as one person committed the crimes until Mario Espezzi, that sounds so offensive, but it's his actual name, Mario Espezzi, a crime journalist working at La Nazarene, recognised the similarities between the 1974 and 1981 murders and proclaimed them to be the work of a serial killer. Around this point, there have been over three murders with a similar MO and also it has been spread out over time. Uh, this is the moment when Mario would dub uh, the person that has been committed the murders as the Monster of Florence. This is how we got his nickname. Four months later, Stefano Baldi, who was 26, and his fiancée Susanna Cambi, who was 24, were shot to death and stabbed in a park in the vicinity of Calazano on the 4th of October, uh, um, sorry, on the 23rd of October 1981. Camby's pubic area was cut out like the previous female victims and the area was then kept as the killer's prize. An, anon an, an anonymous person phoned Camby's mother the morning of the murder to talk about her daughter a few days before the homicide. Susanna told her mother that there was someone tormenting her and even chasing by her car. Another pattern that occurs with a lot of these is a strange man is always following and or tormenting either the woman or the couple and this is something that is quite common to happen without a murder actually happening, especially in the 1980s. Except it's a bit odd that this happens right before the victims are about to be killed. It was reported by two, by two couples who stated that they had seen a lone and slightly crazy looking man driving away from the scene in a red coloured Alfa Romero. These testimonies led to the composite sketch of the killer that would be used all the way through the case. On the 19th of June 1982, Paolo Minardi, who was 22, and Antonella, uh, sorry, Antonella, Migliorini, who was 20, they were an engaged couple who were actually given the nickname Vinavi, uh, which is a brand of superglue because they were inseparable apparently. That's actually kind of cute but also kind of cringy. They were shot to death just after having sex in his car on a, on a private road in, Mon in Montespertoli. Montespertoli. This time the killer failed to, ha to have, have time to mutilate Antonella's body as passers-by were getting close to the scene. Uh, Minardi was seriously injured but still alive when the couple was found. Police and ambulances were called immediately but Mardini died sometime later in hospital. Mardini actually heard the killer coming and tried to drive away but in a panic he lost control of the car and it went into a ditch on the other side of the road. 
It suggested that the killer, after shooting the couple, drove the car into the woodland nearby, only to lose control of the car and leaving it in the ditch where it was discovered by a driver only a few minutes later. The Red Cross worker who had accompanied Mark Minardi to the hospital was called by a man who claimed to be the killer and asked what Minardi had said. This is because Silva della Monica issued a press release in which she claimed they had survived long enough to say some words. This was a poor attempt to get the killer to confess to the crimes, which obviously didn't work. Same work had been called again by the same person while on vacation in Rimini. The second call left the investigators baffled as to how the caller knew how to reach the guy, which is terrifying. So now we're going to be going into the invest actual investigation. So on the 1st of July 1982, 12 days after the previous murder, police headquarters received a letter containing a yellow 1968 newspaper clipping of the Locchio Lo Bianco shooting, which was the first murder. Over the article, someone had, had scrawled, take another look at this crime. If you remember rightly, like I said, this is the first murder. So the police looked into the 1968 case and found the following, found the following similarities. The bullets found at the crime scenes had all been fired from the same gun. The bullets came from the same box. The monster's gun had a defective firing pin that left behind distinctive unique markings on each casing. And the type of ammo was copper jacketed Winchester rounds of series H. At this point, Melly was still in prison for the 1981 crime. Mario, Mario Spezzi had discovered that Melly was residing in a halfway house located in Verona. Due to the house's rules on not upsetting the patients, Mario had informed the staff that he wanted to interview the residents about their time in the halfway house. Even though Melly during his interview fully believed that he was being interviewed about the house, years of being held away had clearly taken its toll on him. His mental health had suffered massively and he was no longer the same man that he was before the murder of his wife and brother. Melly ended up mumbling several confusing remarks during the interview during the interview before saying, and quote, they need to figure out where that pistol is, otherwise there will be more murders. They will continue to kill, they will continue. End quote. Melly's words were taken then as evidence. It also shows that he knows too much about so much about the 1968 crimes that it's just stuck with him over the past 14 years. The first conclusion based on Melly's statement was that the 1968 murder had been a traditional Sardian clan killing, meaning that it was planned beforehand and performed by a group of men usually related to each other, rather than the impromptu crime of passion performed by Melly on his own. This means that the gun was either destroyed by the group or hidden, not just thrown away like Melly had originally claimed. Police then investigated brothers Melly and, Sal and Salvatore Vinci, the man that Melly had originally accused back in 1968. Police then discovered a car in the woods that belonged to Salvatore's younger brother, Francesco, and the police believed that the car this was the car used in the crime and that Francesco had hit it in an attempt to evade suspicion. Francesco was later arrested in 1983, but soon after the monster struck again and murdered Wilhelm Rich, uh, Friedrich Horst Meyer, who was 24, and Jens Yu Rushed, who was 24 as well. This was different considering both victims were actually male. The couple were travelling in Italy to celebrate an important scholarship Meyer had just won. They were both shot, but then they were both shot to death in their Volkswagen Sambo bus in Galuzzo. 
Uh, Roch's long blonde hair and his similar build could have been con- con- could have convinced the killer that he was after a homosexual couple, inst- a heterosexual couple instead. So he thought that he was actually a woman. In a fit of rage of realizing the monster had killed two men instead of a man and a woman like he originally planned, he destroyed most of the items in the car. Considering the monster was easily able to shoot Mayor and rushed through the windows of their van, a considerably higher vehicle than the usual Italian vehicle, it was believed that this would put the killer at around 1.80 meters, also 5.9, 5. in height. Even though Francesco was in prison at the time of the murder, the police believed that he had ordered his cousin to carry out a copycat crime in, that, in an attempt to get him released. Antonio was arrested on a weapons charge and the two would be interrogated for months, but Antonio, w- Antonio would manage to be released because there was no evidence that the weapons had even belonged to him or that they had been used at all in the crime. Francesco, however, remained in prison since the police were preferred to not preferred to not have a criminal out at all, so they didn't want to risk anything. Despite the fact that there was actually still no evidence that suggested he was actually the killer. On the 29th of July 1984, the monster killed again, the victims being Claudio Stefanici, who was 21, and Pia Gilda Rottini, who was 18. The pair were shot to death and stabbed in Stefanici's Fiat Panda, which was parked in a woodland area near Fachito. That's definitely so wrong. The killer again removed the girl's pubic area and also her left breast. There had been reports of a strange man who had been following them in an ice cream parlour some hours before the murder. A close friend of of Rottini uh, recalled that she had been confided that she had been bothered by an unpleasant man while working at the bar she was a barmaid at. Since this was 14 murders around this point, the public were outraged by the police still not being able to catch the monster, and the public by this point knew that whoever the police arrested for the crimes, it was most likely not going to be the killer, because they'd got it wrong before. The government offered a reward of £290,000 for any information that would lead to the capture of the monster. But despite the efforts, the monster killed one last time in September 1983. The victims were a couple of French tourists named named Jean Mi- uh, Michel Cravetichi, who was 25, and Nadine Marut, who was 36. They were camping on vacation in Italy, and Marut was shot to death and stabbed while sleeping in their small tent in a woodland area near San Casino. Uh, uh, Jean was killed a short distance away from the tent while trying to escape, and Marriott's body was mutilated like all the other female victims. Because the killer had murdered a foreign couple, there was not yet a missing persons report. The killer had then sent a taunting note, along with a piece of Marriott's breast, to the state prosecutor, Silva Della Monica, stating in a note that he had been drawn, that he had been drawn up using cutouts from a magazine. This, in the note, it said that the murder had taken place and they're challenging local authorities to find the victims. A person uh, picking mushrooms later that day found the bodies a few hours after the letter had arrived at Monica's desk. Della Monica instantly dropped herself in the case out of fear that she would be another victim, since then the monster has never been heard from again. Mario Rotella remained convinced that the, that the Sardinian clan member was responsible for all the murders. He was partially suspicious of Salvatore Vinci, even though Vinci was still in custody when the French couple was murdered. And 
weirdly enough, that is kind of where the case ends. There's not much information after that, just the fact that... Yeah, that's pretty much how the information ends. It's Like, they got Vinci still in custody, and the suspicious of Salvatore, but neither men have officially been charged with being the killer or been known to being the killer, and that's basically it. They kind of just told... Uh, people, the people of Florence, Italy, that the case had been solved, the murderers, the murderers in prison, and that's basically it. There wasn't really anything else about it. It's very, it's a very small case. It's a very, very small case. Uh, which is, yeah, it's such a weird one. It's such a weird case. But this all happened in like the late 1980s weird side in the 60s and it's such a weird one. This guy clearly hates women. That's definite because he did worse to women than what he did to the men. The men were just collateral to get them out of the way. That's pretty much the reasoning for it. No one can tell me different. And this is someone that definitely used to abuse animals as a kid. This is someone who was neglected as a kid but finds his childhood as a comfort, which is the reason why he doesn't hunt children. Someone that's definitely grew up in a religious household, because otherwise, why target the couples that are having sex clearly out of wedlock? Clearly someone who's religious and thinks that's a sin. That's that's what I could get from this. That's basically what I can get from this. If you have any other, if you have any idea any extra information on this case please do message me on my discord instagram twitter the whole thing i am under law goth panda and absolutely everything if you have any more additional information or any more facts that you know about this case that i might have missed or might have gone wrong if i get anything wrong whilst doing any of these please message me and let me know i'm always up for learning about more about these cases and it would be great if you could just let me know absolutely anything, especially if I miss things, because I'll happily bring it up on streams and stuff. That would be amazing. But yeah, this was episode two of season one, of series one. This was a very short one. I'm aware of this, but there will be another episode out next Friday. And if you are watching the Twitch streams, there should be one. If you, and you are listening to this dead on a Friday, there should be another True Crime Friday for you later on on a completely different case. So keep your eyes out for that one. But I am not 100% sure what next week's episode is. So this will be, so we'll have to see. If anyone has any episode suggestions, like any cases you'd like me to cover, please send me a message, let me know. I'm always up for taking suggestions. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Little Goth Panda and everything. So make sure you send me a message. That would be great. But thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you next Friday for another True Crime Friday.